This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Write On with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that fantastic team at the University Bookshop. Join us for the next hour as we get to delve into that wonderful world of books. Rob MacDonald, who writes as R.W.R. MacDonald, is a Melbourne-based Kiwi. His debut novel, The Nancys, won the Best First Novel in the 2020 Nio Marsh Awards. His second novel, Nancy Business, was published last year. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Vanda. Thanks for having me back. Yes, yeah, so as I say, I had the pleasure of chatting with you on the show about the Nancys when it first came out. And Nancy Business um, follows on from this. And like the Nancys, it's set in Riverstone, a fictional New Zealand town that is a very thinly disguised Belclutha. So what is your connection with Belclutha in that area? Yeah, sure. So uh, I grew up on a farm uh, just outside of Awaka in South Otago. Um, so Belclutha was, it was the big town we would uh, sometimes go to with mum. Um, and those days, oh, it probably took the Fort Fairlane about 40 minutes to get there, although <clears throat> nowadays that travel time seems to be a, a lot shorter. Um, so we would go in there and, uh, you know, it had obviously all the shops and there's the, the one traffic light um, out near Kaitangata. Um, so that so growing up there, and then I went to boarding school in Dunedin, but it's a place that up until COVID I'd returned to you know, every every year of my life, even after moving away. And my brother's still on the farm there. Um, yeah, so I've, I guess I've got to see it through a child's eyes, through teenager, you know, and, and my relationship with the place has changed over the years. And now I have a very, very deep um, uh, fondness, I guess, or love, love for that particular part of New Zealand. Yeah. And why did you disguise it as a fictional town rather than <laughs> calling a spade a spade? Yes, very good question. I um, So I started writing my draft of, first draft of um, the Nazis uh, at Faber Academy, um, which I was doing um, writing first draft of a novel, um, and that was in Melbourne. And... Uh, I had, my tutors were Tony Jordan and Patty O'Reilly. So they said, I think it was Patty who said, um, unless you're going to have the details exact and, you know, the that particular playground's on the 
you know, the left side of the street and the swings are painted red and all of that, um, then you can just make the town fictional and that will give you some more leeway in terms of layout and if you want to move the playground to, you know, the other side of the street and make the swing green, then go for it. So there was that. And then when I was thinking about names for for this town, um, I wanted to play on uh, Nancy Drew's hometown, which is River Heights. And obviously, you know, we have the Clutha River going through. So um, so it was Riverstein. So that's that's how that all came to be. But it did give me a lot of freedom. So in uh, the Nancy's and Nancy business, the town hall is very different. It's actually based on a town hall um, when I was living in Footscray, which had the big columns and, you know, sort of uh, almost um, that kind of American South sort of building, um, whereas the town hall in Balcluth are very, very different. And I've just heard um, people were excited to tell me that they demolished it and then rebuilt it. So it wasn't an explosion, though. Um, <laughs> so, yes, I'm actually heading there soon. So I'm very, very excited about seeing you know how the town's going and and the changes there <laughs> in nancy business it's a year on um and tippy chan is now a 12 year old so when creating your narrator for these books what made you write from the perspective of a young girl yeah so when i was first coming up with the idea of the nancys and that was back in 2006 and I had just finished, um, for my own, I guess, learning, I had done, uh, I had done, I had written uh, two first draft film scripts because I was uh, doing a screenwriting course. Um, and one was a sort of a adventure fantasy. Um, and then the second one was a horror and so I thought, okay, why don't I try writing a murder mystery? And I've always loved reading them and watching them and particularly love amateur detectives um, because they're like us. They, you know, unless you're working in the police or a journalist or, um, you know, they have the same access to anything that, that we do. So I thought, okay. And then I started writing and it came from, there was a child writing about, you know, investigating the murder. And I think their friend had died and which isn't in the Nancy's. But, um, that got me to then asking those why questions like, and who, who is this child? Um, why are they investigating a murder? How are they able to? And I, I knew straight away, I wasn't condoned by this child's parents, like, I think they would be horrified. Um, and it was really sort of organic. And then I realised um, that, you know, there was a, it, it was, you know, she was doing it with her babysitters and that was her uncle and he used to come from that town. And I really did question around the gender and it just seemed to gravitate that this was a, a girl. Um, and the age, as I worked through that first draft, it did go up because it started younger. But my writers group were like, no, um, that's, you know, the, the, I guess the 
the voice for them felt felt a bit older. And so 11 seemed to, to fit quite well with Tippy. And then with her parents, um, so her mum is Pakeha and that's Uncle Pike's um, uh, sister. And Joe Chan, so Wei-Fing Chan, came from uh, my experience within the international education um, uh, industry, if you want to call it that, sector is probably a nicer word. And I've, um, for years, I wanted to be, I was thinking about what qualities do I want to be to have? And I wanted her to have courage and resourcefulness and um, obviously curiosity and resilience. And so I could see some of that through her mum. Uh, her mum's a, a nurse and she's also, her mum's very stubborn and they share quite a few qualities there. And <laughs> what I loved with, with international ed is meeting these incredible students from around the world and a lot of them are first in family um, they're coming to a different culture in a lot of cases they're having to learn a new language you know English isn't their first language and just the the courage and resilience and resourcefulness and all of that and so that's how I sort of um, came to to Joe Chan that he was an international student that's how to be to his mum and him met and and so it was it was through that process um, and I'm obviously very conscious that I don't have that lived experience so uh, I talked to my agent a lot and she is um, Eurasian and she says just tell them that you know I'm your first reader and, and I'm Eurasian and I love it and um, and I obviously, um, you know, have have friends and know people within that experience. So I'm always very, very mindful. It's, you know, it's something I think we have to be really aware of um, moving into that space. Yes, because I was going to ask you, you know, with her, her really interesting ethnic background, background, of course, that sort of brought this whole element of, you know, some of the um, everyday racism she encounters. Um, and yes that she perhaps doesn't feel but the, the older people around her notice as well. Um, yes. So that was, was that part of your yeah. wanting to put that element in? Yeah, I think I can't have a character, I can't whitewash Tippi's experience. Um, so that would be as remiss as then going too far and, you know, going into tropes or, or, you know, racial stereotypes or anything like that. And what I was wanting to show with the Nazis is we're still in this world, even if everyone's larger than life, I, I wanted to take one element which was I've made the Nazis' world post-homophobic. So we're dealing with a world where, that, where the world's moved on. And, but what you've got left is, you know, um, queer people who were part of the old world and, you know, that trauma and everything is still in there. But in this world, there's still, there's still racism, there's still misogyny and, you know, it's not rampant in Riverstone, but it's still there. And I think, um, yeah, I, I just think that's, um, as I was writing it, that was part of Tippy's experience that, there's almost this, you know, othering, even if a lot of people around her don't even realise that's what's going on. 
And included in that fabulous diversity that you have got with um, Tippy and her own ethnic background, of course, is Tippy's uncle Pike and his partner Devon. And, and they provide such amazing you know, support and guidance for Tippy in a grown-up loving but quite mischievous kind <laughs> of a way. Um, how did they come to you as characters? <clears throat> so it was uh, initially around that thing of who would who would actively um, encourage and help a child solve a murder. Uh, and what I wanted with, with both those characters is that always their intent is good, even if perhaps they're being irresponsible as adults. Um, it's never malicious. It's never, they're never um, intentionally putting Tippy in harm's way. They always sort of think they've got it, even if perhaps they don't always have it. Um, so that was first and foremost, I wanted that. And what I wanted with, with Uncle Pike, who's a celebrity stylist in, in Sydney, and, and Devin, who's a young fashion designer, is to play on those tropes that we've seen and that we know um, which is, you know, the the camp gay guy who's who's really good at hairdressing, um, and subvert that and give those characters. Um, I, I just wanted to see new heroes, and so giving them something which they do outside of the salon, but still, um, still celebrating the fact that they are top of their field at what they do. But then showing them in a different in a different way, and I also very much with the Nazis wanted to celebrate camp because for a long time, you know, growing up uh, struggling with my sexuality, camp was the only thing I saw, and it was you know it was people that was sort of the uh, comic relief, and but you know as I um, after I came out and you know um, worked through my own internalized homophobia and just realizing just how incredibly brave and courageous these people were who were being themselves dial turned up to 10 and out there um, being visible um, when no one else was so yeah so I really wanted to to celebrate that within these characters and within those characters um, and the way they are there is this glorious theme and sense of humour in your books, um, yet they still cover some really serious and really poignant themes, uh, particularly for Tibby of grief, you know, fear of loss, you know, and the racism that we mentioned earlier. So how, much, how important is that humour for you in your writing? Yeah, it's, um, I think it's, it's really important. Um, if I sit down, like if I sit down to try and write something funny, I just don't, I, I, you know, I don't think I can. But with these characters, just letting them loose and doing whatever they want to do, uh, that seems to work. And I've, I always find for me, I enjoy stories that have dark and light. I can't. I just can't do, and kudos to those people who can and who write them, but I can't do Misery Lit, where it's just this happens and it's worse and then it gets worse and then it gets worse and then at the end everyone dies or, or whatever. I just, I need 
to write something, there is hope, even if things are super dark. And this is why having a child protagonist who is optimistic and hopeful as a default setting was an interesting way of looking at some dark things. And, you know, Tippy certainly feels, and she feels that, but with Tippy, there's always this idea that there is another day and, you know, things will get better. Um, so I think being able to explore that and having the humour, because also with, you know, if you want to go into some dark areas, then at some stage you, well, for me, uh, I like to then be able to release the tension for the reader and humour is a great way of being able to do that. You have this humour and you have these larger-than-life characters in this small-town setting. Um, so what did placing them in Riverstone offer you that, say, a bigger city like popping them into Dunedin couldn't? Yeah, so I really, again, there was that, that homage with Nancy Drew and River Heights, um, and I really liked the idea... Um, and I think small towns and crime fiction just seem to go so well together. The, them being amateur detectives, I just felt it was a, a good way in because a lot of people know a lot of things in small towns about a lot of people. Um, so you almost have that shortcut there. Um, yeah, I... I just saw them, uh, and I also like this idea of not being able to escape your past, and in particular with Pike. So he's coming back, and in a small town, you can't really hide. I mean, you can hide at home, but at some stage you've got to go to the supermarket or you've got to go down the street, and you know you're going to see someone or someone's going to recognise you. Or, And so I like that because I wanted Pike to, you know, almost be forced to confront his past and to start dealing with that and also the interesting thing about dealing with that he for him he's sort of frozen this town as it was when he was 16 and so to then play with that and no the town's actually really progressed a lot but there's still the same buildings yet it's it's moved on in a way I thought was yeah something interesting to to play with and to to write. Hmm. Now, you've already alluded to the Nancys you know, and Nancy Drew. Um, so where did you and Nancy Drew first cross paths and why was that important for you to use as an idea behind this novel? Yeah, yeah. So um, I was a voracious reader as a child. So I did read, my sister had a couple of Nancy Drews and I remember there was the TV series back in the early eighties, maybe or late seventies. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't a, a massive fan, but you know, I enjoyed the novels and I knew who she was. And, and, um, when it came to, Tippy and the gang. Um, I wanted to be so I knew that she had this love for solving mysteries, and she was really desperate to to have her own mystery to solve. And so I wanted her to have a role model that she's based her detection skills on. And I really wanted it to be a female role model. Um, and so then I sort of you know did a, did a, did research and 
with Nancy Drew, the fact that, you know, the first three books came out, I think it was either 33 or 32, around the early 30s, allowed then for this generational aspect. So her uncle could grow up loving them as well. And then that gives the two of them this love of detection, but it also gives them this special language where they can riff off and refer to, um, you know, different plot points and different Nancy Drew uh, books. And yet we still have Devin, who's the sort of outsider and who can be that person for the reader who doesn't know those Nancy Drew books as they try to explain. And usually it, Devin gets completely the wrong end of the stick with what they're saying. Um, yeah, so that's that's where Nancy Drew came in. And then when I was um, researching, uh, I didn't realise about the different iterations. So um, she, as a character, has evolved each time there's been uh, rewrites of the series. Uh, so Nancy Drew in the 30s, there's problem, you know, it's problematic in terms of uh, racial stereotyping and classism and, you know, things today where just wouldn't fly at all, um, which have been revised out. But the Nancy Drew then was very, very um, determined. Um, she had very low tolerance uh, <laughs> for anything really, and um, particularly um, around authority and when it came to the police. And I thought, this is perfect. This is yeah. their Nancy Drew uh, for this for this team because she's just off doing her own thing, and that's exactly what I wanted for the Nancys. Yeah, Club Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, um, Nancy Business is your second novel featuring Tippy Chan and her madcap family. Yeah. So, did you always intend to write more than one novel about her or a series from the outset? Yes. Yeah. So. That was the hope. Um, when, again, when I was discovering the story, I realised there was a, a, a larger story arc at play. And um, for me, when I sort of was, was trying to work it out, it felt like it was a trilogy. Um, and so Nancy Business, so that is what I'm um, wanting to complete. So Nancy business being book two within a trilogy. So you still, people can still read Nancy business as a standalone uh, and there's enough references that you'll understand what's happening. Although I feel for a reader to have a richer experience, you'd read the Nancy's first and then Nancy business. Um, so it was interesting. So in terms of plotting and um, I ha have plotted Nancy business also as being book two of a trilogy. So the midpoint in Nancy business is pretty big <laughs> because it's also <laughs> the midpoint of this trilogy and this, and this larger um, story. So obviously I don't want to give any spoilers, but yeah, so that was a, quite an interesting uh, exercise. And uh, yeah, I'm working on the third uh, book at the moment. You had amazing success with your first novel, The Nancys. Um, no, you won the Nio Marsh Award for Best First Book and you were shortlisted in Australia for the Ned Kelly Awards equivalent there. So how did that affect you when it came to writing your next novel or subsequent novels? 
Yeah, so I I was lucky in a way, like I'm incredibly grateful for for the success of the Nancys. I actually started Nancy business while the Nancys was on submission. So even though I had, you know, at that stage we didn't even know if we were going to sell the Nancys, I just felt I I want to write this trilogy. I'd had these characters in my head for over 10 years by then, and I knew I wanted to get justice for for joe little spoiler and and um and uh and i wanted to you know do this for tippy and for the gang even if it meant you know if i would have to um self-publish or whatever i just wanted readers for 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 the nancy's and i wanted them to exist outside of my brain um so by the time uh the nios um came around i think i might have sold the second book or it it, i had certainly written it so that pressure i didn't have that pressure i think had i not written the second book and then won the nios yes i think that would have been very very difficult and so now writing book three after having done book two, I don't feel that same pressure, I guess. Um, so, yeah, look, my my biggest writing advice is just if you've got something on submission, just keep writing the next one and you just, yeah, because otherwise, yeah, I think that's, the, that's where you can fall into a trap is if you just stop and then have to start up again. Oof, yeah. <laughs> And you've had this this one set of characters clamoring and banging away in your brain for quite some time now and mm. are still in the process of writing the, the third in the trilogy then. Yeah. Um, are you feeling the urge to bust out into something out, else? Yes, yeah. So I actually have written a standalone and it's, I think I just went completely the other way. Plus it was in lockdown. So in Melbourne we were locked down for about two years. Uh, mm. So I escaped um, through, I've written a uh, murder, Manor House murder mystery, an homage to the golden age of crime. So it's a historical novel. It's set in 1933 England and then 1918 London. And it's um, adults, adult protagonist. um, So very, it's kind of, I wouldn't say the polar opposite, but it's certainly, it's not the Nancy's. Um, so I'm still, you know, it, it was interesting and it was a great way of just sort of flexing my muscles because also within to be, you know, you, you're constrained around certain word use and, yeah, uh, and then obviously with historical, you get to play with di- different sort of dialogue patterns and, and, uh, the, yeah, so it was great to do that. Um, saying that, I didn't know how I was going to be when I came back to writing Nancy's Three, and it was just the most incredible thing because it was it was like uh, muscle memory. Um, I thought I was going to have to, you know, um, go back and forth, and and but as soon as I just started typing, there they were, and away we went. I, I had written probably 10,000 words, which was great. So I had that to go back to get into get into the, the new story. Um, 
Yeah, so I was glad I had the break and I'm glad to be back. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you so much, Rob, for coming in on the show and talking about um, the Nancy's and Nancy business. And I really look forward to reading number three in the trilogy and the new standalone. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thanks, Vanda. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We're going to take a short music break now. Back soon. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by the great team at the University Bookshop. David Howard is an editor and a poet who has produced many collections over a gosh near 40 year career. And he's had the, um, been the recipient of many writers' residencies all over the world. His new collection, Rawaho, The Completed Poems, draws together works from across his writing career. So, David, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you very much, Fonda. It's great to be here and lovely to have the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Now, Rawaho is a large body of work across quite a long span of time. So how on earth did you go about selecting poems and choosing what to include in this and what not to include? It comes down to personal contempt, if I'm honest. (laughs) There are some poems I simply wish I hadn't written. There are many poems I wish I hadn't written in the way that I wrote them. And there are a few poems, not that many, and I'm not being falsely modest, not that many where I think, oh, yeah, it's okay. In fact, I feel, I feel quite chuffed to have written that. But not enough of the last category to actually make even the slimmest volume, maybe a chapbook of 25 pages. So what I've been doing since I was a teenager is working to one book. This book, Rawaho. Now, did I know it was going to be called Rawaho and did I know its shape when I was a teenager? Of course not. I'm not prescient. But I announced to everyone grandly, as teenage males in particular are prone to do, that I was going to embark on a major work. It would be significant and it would give shape to my life. My male colleagues looked at me and a few of them muttered, you know, vaguely supportive words all of the the young women i knew just went oh god does he think this is going to impress me what a tosser but nonetheless this has happened and and it's happened of course with fits and starts as i've had a family as i've had personal crises as i've changed countries as i've started and abandoned careers because i was a professional pyrotechnician for 25 years uh, i couldn't make money astonishingly enough writing sonnets in New Zealand, came as a shock. But throughout, sometimes more fluently than other times, I've made work. And I've often hung on to that work. My my publication history has generally got about seven years between titles. Now, it's true that there are little chapbooks and, you know, pamphlets that make it look like I've been more prolific. But in fact, I've never been very prolific. I have, however, been dogged with all of the negative sense that dogged has, as well as the positive. And I learned very early on from my teens, in fact, from composers, not so much writers. Now, what do I mean by that? I noted that people like Stravinsky frequently revised works, that uh, Carl Amadeus Hartmann, one of my favorite symphonists, revised his symphonies. And I came to understand that this wasn't just because of performance opportunities in the case of Stravinsky. He saw opportunities in the text, in the score that he hadn't fully brought out. And so he, he went back. And it has surprised me, although this isn't a criticism, because every writer necessarily finds his or her approach, it surprised me that more writers in New Zealand don't rework and revise and fix up and attend to weaknesses in their work when they see them. Because I don't regard the initial composition period of any work as sacrosanct. It is irrelevant whether I was 20 years old or 40 years old when I wrote this work, because the work is not about biography. A novel is a story that needs to hold together. A book of poems is also a set of stories that need to hold together. And if you messed it up, and you can see a way to fix it up, you have an obligation to your craft, to yourself, and to the half a dozen people who are actually going to get around 
to taking the book off the shelf and read it. Now, I really don't think it's that grand. I just think it's trying to stay honest. Mm-hmm. And my way of staying honest has been to assemble work and, and revise it over the years in the way that I have learned from some of my favorite composers. And I understand that this looks a bit grand in New Zealand, as if you're giving yourself ears, and I'm being defensive deliberately here and trying to head off criticism and probably failing. But fundamentally, I don't want scrappy, egocentric, half-realized work hanging around in a book. I want to get it as tight and as evocative as I can, but still advancing the vision I have of self and world. And that's what Raiwaho is trying to do. And that's a lovely bit of self-awareness of yourself, looking back to your teenage self with the big grand ideas about having this masterpiece of work over a lifetime, um, that, oh, actually, you've honed that. And it leads on nicely to one of the comments I was going to make. And one of the things that fascinated me with this collection was that you had the dates at the bottom of the works of when you wrote them, and basically how long these took. Some of the dates, you know, it was was a single day. Other dates I looked at, it was decades. So, you know, was that part of your process from the outset to record the dates or did you have to do some sleuthing? And No, it was part of the process from the start. And I actually learned it from a Provencal troubadour, Requier, who lived from 1230 to around 1292. And, And he's one of the few troubadours who superintended his work for publication, very unusual, and he put it publication dates. And I became aware of him and read a book about the troubadours as a teenager, propped up in my little bedroom in Marshall and Row Christchurch, you know, with my parents arguing in the next room. Sorry, guys, it's true. And I, I was fascinated. I thought, my God, this song, this song was written in May 1273. And there's a kind of allure to history for me And there always was. And history was one of my strongest subjects, even when I was at school and when I wasn't a particularly good student. And that has stayed with me. And it's helped me as I've gone around the world and lived in different countries, because one of the ways to orient, of course, is to look at the folklore, look at the key political events, look at the religious affiliations in any country. And literature has been one way of doing that for me. So I've been feeding myself, but the material has also grown as I've understood more a little bit more anyway over the decades about how people make decisions and how they orient themselves and one of my observations in looking at those dates were that some of the ones that took the longest to me appeared to be the more personal works um thinking for example there was a poem called the held ear which was clearly you know for your dad um was this a reflection of the difficulty in putting something out there quite personal yes it was now there is no one way there are no 20 ways that are better than any other 20 ways than any other one way to make a work that is about someone who's given you life or or it could have been a love relationship where at least you gave a great part of yourself and received a great part of the other and the key obligation i think in writing comes out of my understanding of what Auden says. You don't say something just because it sounds impressive. When you're writing a personal poem, and a lot of my poems are not personal, but when you're writing a personal poem, there's an obligation to be honest to the circumstance. You are making literature, and you're trying to make fine, evocative literature that moves the reader, but you're also trying to nail something specific to two people 
neither of whom the reader is going to know much about. And I'm quite relaxed if other writers choose not to hone and censor and open up in the way that I have. But I kept coming back to my poem from my father because I felt I hadn't done justice to the nature of the relationship I had with him. Now, am I engaging a special pleading here? I understand that most readers actually aren't fundamentally going to care. I don't mean they'll be callous, but they don't really care. But it matters to me. And again, writing is one way of trying to stay honest with yourself and is never more so than when you're writing about a parent or another loved one. So when I thought I got it wrong, when I thought, oh, that's a bit of a flashy line that doesn't actually work with the context of the relationship, I come back and back and back. And because my father was so central, he taught me how to write. He gave me confidence in myself. I mean, he was a wonderfully evocative, positive person. I felt I had an obligation to him that was greater than perhaps I would feel to even another writer of mine. And in this poem, in fact, you know, it took, was one of the ones that <laughs> took decades. Um, one of the other things that I immediately thought is, hmm, you must, as a poet, refuse to give up on something. Um, you know, so you had the start of this poem 20 years ago, and yet you're still working on it 20 years later. Um, do you not like to let things go or just even stop and start again? I'm going to come at that sideways, which, given what I've already said in this interview, will not surprise you or your readers. Okay, so for me, writing moves from perception to perception. So each scene, each stanza, each image either changes the perception the speaker has of self or their relation to another character, if, if in fact it's a dramatic poem, and I do write dramatic poems. The key is to give the reader enough information so that he or she can orient themselves into the poem, but not so much so that they can't attach their own expectation, desire, story to the narrator's voice. This is really problematic in short works. It's actually easier to manage in longer works. But in short works, the obligation is... I want you, the reader, to come in. I want you to attach your experience of being with your father or mother or sister or child or lovers, plural, through time. But I also want to honour my experience. So it's a negotiation with the unseen and the unknown because I don't know the reader and they don't know me. And what gets us there? Well, the common thing, language, because what is language? Language is the history of being human. That is literally what it is. If you go to the Oxford English Dictionary and you, you open up at a particular word, you'll be able to see that it was first used in 1792 by this author, and it was a positive word. But by 1847, it had become slightly sarcastic. It had shifted its meaning. And now in the 20th century, it's been completely remade. Now, there are obvious words like gay would be one. Totally changed its primary association for audience over the last century. Is this good or bad? Well, it's not a question of good or bad. This happens. It doesn't have a moral weighting. But as a writer, I have to attend to it. So sometimes my evaluation of individual words changes over my lifetime as I become more aware of how rich the word is. Like when I was a teenager, gung-ho, and it was all about my will, I didn't figure out that this word meant several things. I was a bit too self-obsessed. And now I think, yeah, but... Mm. 
Yeah, but that's actually a really loaded political term. I'm not talking about political correctness here. I'm talking about the history of the 20th century. This was a word that was used by Goebbels, for instance, in one of his speeches. Maybe you need to just finesse this usage a bit, David. <laughs> Maybe you need to honour the wider world more. Which shows the value in what you said about going back and re-examining your yeah. work. So when you were doing this collection, of how many instances when you were looking at poems that you had written as that brash, young, enthusiastic, quite egocentric teenager, mm. and now look back and go, ooh, you've come a long way, young man. <laughs> or hope this is a long way. This reminds me, but alas, I can't claim the same joy. Um, when Jonathan Swift, the author of many wonderful works, but principally Gulliver's Travels from our point of view, I reread Gulliver's Travels as an old man. He went, God, I had a genius when I wrote that. And I've always liked that statement because he's taking the piss out of himself and he's complimenting himself at the same time. So I think it's honest. He's not saying I don't have an ego, but he's saying, yeah, there are limits to that. And even now there are limits to that. So it's not like, you get over your personal foibles and tendencies. Um, it would be wonderful if you could, but anyone who's been living in close relationship with someone else for more than 30 years knows you can't. You know, you can kind of manage your weaknesses. So what, what I've tried to do in this collection is say, this is the stuff that I believe hits better than anything else I've done in the form where I'm, inverted commas, happy, with a little footnote underneath, to let it go. That's it. I'm moving on. I see this as the last book of poems I will ever publish. There is another book I want to write, but it's prose. And whether I manage to write it or not is a moot point. Not just because, as I said earlier, like you, I can't see into the future, but because I'm not that crash hot at writing prose, to be honest. I tend to jump around a bit much. So I've got a lot to learn. But that's the challenge I'm sending us off. This is the book of poems. This is the project, Roho, that I set myself bumptiously when I was a teenager. It's done. Now, it's done for better or worse. There's, there's no way that I can do things that some other writers can do. And I fully accept that there'll be many people who like poetry who aren't interested in what I'm doing. And actually, that's cool. It's the same with music. You know, you don't like Bob Dylan? Fine. Don't listen to him. Do you think he cares? No. And actually, at the risk of sounding brutal, I don't care. It's fine if you don't want to read my work, but I have an obligation to myself to make the work as well as I can. And I hope I have in Rawaha. I feel really delighted and grief-stricken at the same time because now I'm stuck. I've got to actually do this new book and I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm back to where I was when I was a teenager. Haven't got a clue. Which is quite a refreshing place to start from, I suppose, if you're brave. Now, you said earlier that um, a number of your works aren't personal, and in you know, looking through this collection, there are a lot of poems that have been dedicated to or potentially inspired by other poets and writers. Were these part of using poetry as an intellectual exercise for you? It's an intellectual exploration. I it's an exercise in the sense that going to the gym and, and working hard and getting, getting the blood coursing around your body is an exercise. But it's not an exercise in the sense of something that you did when you came home from school and you're going to take back and be graded on it. It's, it's a way of encountering an intelligence that is 
frankly more capacious and and more engrossing than my own and trying to position myself through language through the commonality and strength of language in relation to the work now again i recognize that for a lot of people this is a tedious exercise and they don't want to go here fine there are many many fine writers in new zealand who are far more direct far less elusive and sometimes far less cryptic than me go to them and in these poems too you know you're um dealing with people who are writing responding to writers who had quite a large body of work now how did you compress what you felt about them into such a, a, a small space a small number of words I've been really fortunate, and you alluded to this in your introduction, to live in several countries, and in particular Russia. Tragically, I don't think I'm going to get to Russia again for fairly clear reasons to all your listeners. But when I was in Russia, not only was I surrounded by really warm, highly focused people whom I have great admiration for, I walked past statues of Pushkin and Gomsharov and writers who were no longer part of the contemporary political emphasis, but were central to Russian people's view of themselves, or at least cultured Russian people's view of themselves. One's always got to put that frame around. Now, in New Zealand, in Dunedin, we have Robert Burns, who never visited Dunedin, uh, sitting in the centre of the octagon, um, facing the pub, has, has been pointed out, with his back to the church, which does seem appropriate, um, based on what we know about him. But essentially what I'm saying is, and and many far more highly regarded and highly profile writers than me in New Zealand have pointed this out, New Zealanders by and large don't put a high emphasis on the written culture. Now, that's unfortunate if you happen to be a writer, but it's a complete waste of time complaining that thousands of people will go to a rugby stadium because rugby players have skills and skills that are worth admiration but they won't actually go and pick up Dame Fiona Kidman's new book. It is what it is. I'm starting to sound, you know, like a teenager now, but unfortunately I can't change that. Nonetheless, I can do the best I can and I could admire other writers from different cultures and I can try and learn from them and I can try and synthesize in my own work what I've learned from them. And that's what I've done. And you have been awarded a number of these overseas um, fellowships and and had that um, wonderful gift of being able to be in different cultures and places. How have they impacted upon your your world and your writing? I came to see, and, and people who've lived overseas may have different experiences, will have different experiences and valuations. I came to see that actually... New Zealand was unduly focused on an American model of how to live itself. And because I've lived a lot of the time in former areas of the Eastern Bloc, as it was when I was born, I've understood that there are far more compelling ways of understanding the narrative of what it is to grow and become old and take a view. So, for instance, I live in Croatia now. And Croatia has offered me numerous opportunities, not least of which is living with people who still have the shadow of 1991 and a brutal civil war. Now, everyone I meet has that shadow. It marks them in different ways, of course, and part of the 
task I have is to understand or try to understand the ways that are different. But I'll, I'll take my immediate family. Uh, my father-in-law is a diehard communist and supporter of Tito, anti-Stalinist, as Tito was, believes that it was an absolute disaster when Yugoslavia fell apart, and he has no time for consumer society and the American model that has been so heavily adopted in New Zealand. My mother-in-law is a devout Roman Catholic who goes to Mass pretty much at the drop of the hat, will cross herself if I say something untoward and will touch wood even if she doesn't feel like crossing herself. In other words, she has a perception of something that is unseen to me. They are both marked by the deaths of relatives, the murder of relatives. That's an amazing mix to be in front of and, and far more provocative and thought generative than anything I experienced in New Zealand. Does this mean that I didn't learn and experience things in New Zealand? Of course not. Does it mean that I don't love New Zealand? Of course not. Does it mean that I don't think there are intellectually brilliant people here who challenge me? Of course not. But it's out of my previous experience and it's helped me grow and it's helped the writing grow. Which sort of brings nicely to how you decided on this title, Rawaho, and you know, what that actually means um, when you were looking for a brief little way to describe a, a vast body of work over a long period of time. Three things. I am a New Zealander. I remain a New Zealander. And my commitment is to New Zealand literature, even though that's not exclusive. We have three official languages. We have English, we have Maori, and we have sign language. Now, I do know some sign. Uh, my, my granddaughter is, has a, a deafness problem. She's not profoundly deaf, but she's completely deaf in one ear, and she's learning sign, and I have learned some sign as a consequence. When I was a young man and women still paid any attention to me, he said, sadly, with a violin playing in the background, I had a tempestuous relationship with a Katahu woman for four years who was fluent and Tereo, and so I learnt some stuff. Now, I'm not claiming to be in any way fluent, but I learnt some stuff. My ear was honed up, right as a magpie, and I went, oh, that sounds great. Tell me about that. And now living in Croatia, I wanted to bridge back to the country of my birth, New Zealand. And what is that? It's actually the Dalmatian men coming at the end of the 19th century and in the first decades of the 20th century to Northland to work the Kauri gum fields and marrying Maori women by and large because they were the women who were there. And then several generations of fine people emerging who bring both cultures together and, of course, have been dominant. Like the Dalmatians, after they finished in the Kauri gold fields, started the New Zealand wine industry. So they had a major effect on the economic and cultural success of New Zealand and its place in the world economically. And I'm fortunate through an accident of history that this lets me bridge my two countries. And that's where the last poem I wrote in the book was. And it's not last in terms of its placement in the book, but it's, it's the last one to be finished, and it's you know towards the end. And I see that as my stepping off point. It's like I've bridged the two countries in so well as I can. There's still a massive learning curve ahead for me in Croatia, and I'm going to try and step forward in prose now. Well, thank you so much, David. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always, to talk with you about your writing and um, to, to see this body of work completed for you now and that, that brash young man's vision 
finally recognised. So all the very best with the pros <laughs> and, and, and writing in the future. Thank you very much and thanks to your listeners. That is our show for this month. Thank you for listening in and thanks to my guests, Rob McDonald talking about his book Nancy Business and David Howard talking about his new poetry collection, Rawaho. Join us again next month when we get to delve into some more great new books. But until then, happy reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner. The University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.